0: Well, we have a special privilege today, which is to hear from Dr. Mike Goheen. Uh, Mike has been a seminary professor and pastor and church planter for a lot of his adult life. And he leads the missional training center which is actually a fully accredited seminary program that Redemption and a few other churches in town have helped begin. I'm going to be, along with Matthew Brazelton, in the first graduating class, Lord willing, in a few months. And uh, there's other folks from our church that are part of that missional training center as well. Mike uh, wrote a book that many people in our church have read, if you've ever gone through Surge, called The Drama of Scripture. That's been significantly influential here. He's a dual citizen. He's originally from Canada, but also has his American citizenship. And so you'll hear a little Canada in a when you hear him talk, Um, but he has uh, just been such a blessing to me and to the others in the Missional Training Center program, and I thought that today's particular text in Ephesians 1, 8 to 10 would just really be in Mike's wheelhouse, and so you're going to be blessed and encouraged by that. Um, The last thing I'll say before we welcome him is uh, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 that when a disciple is fully formed, he'll be like his teacher, and uh, I just have to tell you, I hope that someday I get to be like Mike Goheen. Because while he's smart and brilliant and remembers so many different things, it's more his character and his love for the Lord, his love for his wife, his love for his kids and his grandkids, his love for us as students that has so shaped me and formed me, and I'm praying that someday I'll get to be like Mike Goheen. (laughs) Um, with that kind of heart and love for the Lord and, and continuing just to be in awe of, of God. So would you give a big, great Redemption Gateway welcome to Mike Goheen? <laughs> Go get him.
1: It's always hard to preach after those kind of introductions. <laughs> and I'm always thinking, if only Luke knew me. <laughs> um, We're really appreciative of the four people from this uh, congregation that are in our cohort. Uh, He didn't mention the other two besides Matthew. Matthew and Luke are the first graduating class. Uh, But uh, Josh will come the the year after, right, Josh, number three? And then uh, Jody will come the year after that. They're the four that are in it. And I want to just really encourage you uh, to say, you've got some good leaders here. I, I, I literally... I'm involved with li- uh, leaders of the church all over the world, and see so many different leaders from so many different countries. So many pastors speak to so many, talk to so many, and um, I've just been impressed with the quality of leadership that uh, there is in the Redemption Churches. Your church, in particular, has some good leaders. You need to thank the Lord for that. That's not common. About four years ago, PBS aired a documentary that was called The Secret State of North Korea. And as part of that story, as part of that documentary, it showed a number of South Korean subversives. And these men and women had made a mission in their own lives to try to subvert the story that the North Korean government was telling the the North Korean people. You see, the North Korean uh, government had been using all manner of propaganda, images of the the army, images of of stores that were filled with all kinds of goods, and and taking uh, various kinds of literature to the towns and to the uh, various places where people lived, having speeches from the great leader. And all of it was designed to tell a story. And the story was that we are one of the most economically prosperous nations in the face of the earth and one of the most militarily powerful. And these South Koreans wanted to subvert that story so that they knew the truth. That in fact, it was oppressive and repressive regime. It was not militarily powerful, and it was not economically prosperous. And so they began to take thumb drives and and record the way South Koreans lived and put popular TV programs that showed South Korean life. And they did a number of things and put them on thumb drives and DVDs and smuggled them over the border to get them to the North Korean people they, they took, on, took radio stations and they started to transmit stories from defectors across the lines that told a different story. And what they were trying to do is subvert that story and help them see it wasn't true. One of the subversives said this, North Korea needs to stop believing in the regime and the story they are telling themselves. A young woman named Chunyang said after she had defected about her own experience back in North Korea, she said, what we have learned is not true. We have been fooled. It made me want to be free from that story. Well, what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians 3 through 14 is doing precisely what the South Korean subversives are trying to do. He has planted the Ephesian church and he knows that the Ephesian church is living in the most powerful empire that had ever existed until that time. And they knew that the Roman empire was very good at propaganda and very good at selling its story to the Roman citizens in a variety of ways. And he knew that Ephesus was one of those places where this story was powerfully told and the Ephesian church was now called to live in a different story. And so what Paul says to the Ephesian church, he says, I'm going to tell you another story. Well, he actually doesn't say just that. He begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what comes is the way that rabbis would pray and praise the Lord. It's called a berakah, the way rabbis would praise the Lord for what God had done in His mighty deeds. And they would bless the Lord. And what Paul is especially focused on is one mighty deed in Christ. But what he sees in Christ is this whole Old Testament story. All of God's promises and mighty acts finding their climactic moment in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And he wants this Ephesian church to understand this is the true story. You're being fooled by another one. And he wants them to say, we want to be more and more free of the idolatry of that story, and we want to live more and more faithfully in the good news of Jesus Christ. And if we are attentive this morning listening for the Spirit's promptings and speech to us. Perhaps we can hear that Spirit speaking through this ancient document, which is the Word of God, and saying to us, you're living in a country with a very powerful story, with a whole lot, and it's not propaganda in the same way the North Korean, but we're getting it in all kinds of ways. We've been through an election we two different visions, white the, one on the right and one on the left, peddling their story of progress, giving us a humanist vision. Many of us last Sunday watched the Super Bowl, and millions of dollars were being paid by businesses to tell a story, a story that you need to be dissatisfied with your life. What you need is this product or this experience, and if you have them, that's what will make you happy. And we hear this story so much that as one author has said, it's become our story without even realizing it. And so Paul comes to the Ephesian Christians, and he comes to us. And what he wants to say to us is, I want you to join me, Paul says, in praising the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done. And I want to detoxify you from your cultural story and the idolatry of it And I want you to live in the true story of the world. That story that is narrated in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, and of which you are now partakers, and you now have been included. Now, in Ephesians 1 3 to 14, he tells a story, but not as a narrative. Rather, again, as many psalms, if you're a reader of the psalms, you'll know this, as many psalms do by narrating the mighty deeds of God and praising Him for what He has done. And so what we have with these benefits in Ephesians 1, election, holiness, adoption, and so forth, are not a bunch of benefits that are kind of like beads in a string, theological issues that we can thank the Lord for this benefit and this benefit and this benefit, one narrating one after the other like beads on a string. No, what Paul has in mind is the whole Old Testament narrative. Now, you see, Paul was a Jewish rabbi when he became a Christian. Now, you might say, tell me something I didn't know. But you know what? Most of us think of Paul as a good Reformed theologian, giving us some good doctrines of election and good doctrines of redemption and so on. And we don't hear and realize that Paul as a rabbi, like every rabbi of his day, was filled up to hear with his Old Testament story. And he, like all the other rabbis and all the other Jews of the time, were wondering how this story was going to be resolved that they had been waiting for. And what excites him in Ephesians 1, 3 to 3-14, is that this story has been in the clim- resolved in the climactic moment of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were here to hear Luke do that walk-up music, were you here? Ephesians 1, 3 to 3-14... That is an excellent contextualization because what Paul is exploding in praise is that in Christ, repeated nine to 11 times in these verses, in Christ, this story has been resolved and fulfilled. And he wants us to not just be excited about that. He wants us not just to praise God for it, but to realize this is the true story and it's got to subvert The idolatrous cultural story that anybody who reads this text is living in. It's a story that for Paul flows out of love and grace. And that's why you hear those words several times throughout. In love, he's done this. Out of his glorious grace, he has done this. It's a story that flows from his gracious, loving kindness towards his creation. And it's a story that for Paul kind of has three moments that are very clear in this story. The first is the Old Testament and what God has done there. The second moment is that in Christ, that whole Old Testament story has been fulfilled. And the third moment is you Ephesian Gentiles have now been included by faith in the gospel into Israel's story, and this is now your story as well. What I want to do right now is in hopefully a very few minutes, I want you to see that story that is so clear in the backdrop of Paul's thinking, and I'm going to do it through diagrams. What we see, Paul says, is that he's working out a plan that has a purpose and a goal the way he puts it in the the later verses is he's working out a plan in conformity with the purpose of his will. He's got a purpose, and he's moving the whole story of all of history towards that purpose. And that purpose is revealed to us, and we're going to talk more about that in verses 8 through 10. That purpose is the uniting of all things in heaven and on earth, Sometimes he calls it the kingdom. Sometimes he calls it the new creation. He calls it a lot of things. There are many images. But he calls it in Ephesians 1.10, the uniting of heaven and earth and all things in heaven and earth under Jesus Christ. For Paul, this is a story of restoration. That is, there was a time in creation When heaven and earth were united, when God was present in the creation and the shalom filled the earth. But with Adam, there had been sin and rebellion. And through Adam and Eve, sin had fractured heaven and earth. Somehow there was this fracture between God's presence and the way God intended things to be and the world that he had created. And so this long story that is told in the Bible that Paul has in his bones is a story to restore heaven and earth as one, the way it was in the beginning and the way it was meant to be. And so he sets out on that long road of redemption and he chooses a people, Israel. And he begins with Abraham and he says, in Abraham, he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. I'm going to restore to you the blessing of creation, and then you are to live that out in the midst of the nations and be a channel of that blessing of the restoration of heaven and earth together. You are to be a blessing of that to the nations. And so Paul is a good rabbi. Abraham is very important to him. The rabbis of Paul's day said something like this, they have God saying this. Of course he didn't, but he have God saying this. God saying, I'm gonna create Adam. And if Adam messes things up, I'm gonna create Abraham to sort out the mess. And so God sees so Paul sees Abraham as this promise and the seed, the nation that will flow from him as being the way God's gonna sort out the mess. And so blessing is a key word in Ephesians 1. Praise be to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. This blessing has come now in Christ. But then at the Exodus on Mount Sinai, the Lord says to Israel, you're my special treasured possession. I have chose you, and your calling is now to be a holy nation in the midst of of the nations in my world. I'm choosing you for a purpose and that is to be a priestly kingdom that mediates my blessing to the nations, and you are to be a holy nation, a holy people in the midst of the nations. And Paul now says, that purpose is being fulfilled, and now you're incorporated into that election to be holy. And then Paul says to them that, uh, sorry, then uh, God says to them at Mount Sinai, I've just redeemed you. Now, what does that mean? You go back now into what's just happened. Israel has been in Egypt. And if you understand the ancient Near East being um, under the bo- in bondage like Israel was, meant that they were under the authority of the Egyptian gods mediated through the son of God, Pharaoh. And so God comes through Moses to the Pharaoh and says, Israel is my firstborn son, my child. And he doesn't serve those gods, therefore, Exodus 12, 12, I'm going to bring judgment on those gods, and I am going to liberate Israel to come and serve me fully. Well, that redemption didn't work, and later Isaiah is going to say, we need another redemption, a much greater redemption to be liberated from our idolatry. And Paul says, that's come. And you now are incorporated in, as ado- adopted as sons into Israel, the firstborn son, and now part of that community. And then Israel knew that their election and their redemption meant that they were to live for the praise of his glory. The way one author puts it so beautifully, he says, from the time of, the, of Mount Sinai, Israel understood that their whole life was bound up with the glory of God, that the nations would look and see and either see the glory of God or as Ezekiel is going to come and say to them when he comes and hammers them, he says, but you profane my name. Instead of the glory of God being seen, in, my glory being seen in you, you profane my name. They were to live to the glory of God. And Paul said, now in Christ, that's come about by his death and resurrection. And you too have been incorporated into that. And then God promises them an inheritance. And this word is an important word throughout the Old Testament. That inheritance was to be the land. And the land was, to use the language of Paul here, Was where heaven touched earth in two ways. It was the place of the temple, tabernacle, then the temple, where God came to dwell. But it was also the law that was to bring forgiveness and to bring about the renewing of Israel's life so that they could live and all things would be made, all things would be seen as right when they lived that way. And so there is this inheritance that they're promised. But that inheritance was a picture of what was coming. When heaven wouldn't just touch earth there in one part of the the world, but where heaven would completely overcome earth at the end. And Paul says, you now have that inheritance. But the problem was, they didn't live faithfully. And so God exiles them. He punishes them. He takes them out of the land. And for 500 years or more out of the land, right up until the time of Jesus, they're crying out, God, forgive our sins. Because if you forgive our sins, then that forgiveness will wash over the earth. And then through us, that forgiveness of sins will flow to others. Come and forgive our sins. And the prophets promised that forgiveness. It says in Jeremiah 31, I'm going to forgive your sins and remember them no more. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I'm going to wash you clean. I'm going to cleanse you from your idolatry and your uncleanness. In, in many other parts of the prophets, Isaiah 40 he says, I'm going to pay for your sin, and you're going to be comforted and freed. And so they were hanging on to this promise that someday God was going to come back. He was going to forgive their sins, and everything that he had promised in the Old Testament would become a reality and it would start with Israel and then that blessing of Abraham would flow to all the nations. What got Paul so excited was that this had happened in the person of Jesus Christ. Especially in the most unexpected way it had come in his death and resurrection. In his death that nobody expected a Messiah to go through, and his resurrection in the middle of history that no Jew is expecting, and it, I think, took Paul a decade to get his head by the power of the Spirit around these events, as how these being the climactic moments when finally God was going to bring blessing to the world. In the cross, Jesus dealt, God dealt with the sin of the world, but in the resurrection, the renewal the new creation, the kingdom of God, the uniting of heaven and earth had been accomplished and had begun. And so in Christ, He had revealed this, He had accomplished this, and He had made it present. And now, and whoever gets to preach on this next Sunday, it's rather exciting, what is going to happen is He gives the Spirit. And that Spirit now is going to make the end present in the middle of history. The uniting of heaven and earth has actually come into the middle of history in Christ and by the Spirit. And the church is now that people, beginning to gather Israel, then adding the Gentiles, is that people that now have a foretaste, now are to deposit, and they now are a heaven-touching earth people. that are to manifest the end of history. And Paul saw his role in this story as the first one the advance guard sent to bring in the Gentiles. After Israel was being gathered, now it came time for the Gentiles to come in the way the Bible had always envisioned. And now he saw himself as the apostle to the Gentiles. And he plants that Ephesian church, and as he plants the church now, he's writing back to them, living in the midst of the Roman story, and he says to them, brothers and sisters, Gentiles who, as he says in chapter 2, were once excluded from this story, once outside of the Jewish story, you have been brought near and brought in. You now have been included in Christ. You now have been included in this story, and this is now your story, to make known a heaven and earth in the midst of the nations. And for Paul, when he says you're included in Christ, he means two things. Number one, you've experienced all the blessings promised to Israel. You now know those blessings. You now are also chosen to be holy. You now have been redeemed. You now have been adopted with Israel. You now can live to the praise of his glory. You now enjoy that coming inheritance in the future. You now can enjoy the forgiveness. So, you now have been recipients of all these blessings. But, second thing for being included in Christ is you're not only included in receiving the blessings, but you're now included in Israel's vocation. Their vocation to live this out in the midst of the nations, to show before it comes where God is taking all of history. That's what Paul's doing in Ephesians 1 3 through 14. And that's my introduction. (laughs) Now we're going to go to verses 8 to 10. And Luke told me I had 35 minutes that begins now. (laughs) And I was allowed to use that as an introduction, he said. He didn't really. Matter of fact, he said, make sure that introduction's a part of the 35 minutes, or a door's going to open and you're going to fall through. (laughs) That's why I'm walking around. just in case it's true. In verses 8 through 10, Paul says, you have been let in on the end of the story. It's been revealed to you. He says, in God's wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, the purpose towards where all of this is going, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, This is where his plan's going, in the fullness of time, and when that fullness of time comes, the end of history, it's to unite all things in heaven and on earth. Brothers and sisters, you know where all of history's going, and that's what makes sense of everything that takes place now. Have you ever watched a movie or a TV show where it had a very complex kind of plot and then finally, when you got to the end and the plot was resolved, you said, oh, that's what was happening through the story. You ever had that? And have you ever then gone back and watched that again? That happened to me recently. My wife and my uh, son, son-in-law and daughter have been watching The Crown. And so they've been through season one, and they're into seasons two, and I, and I then came home, and I was watching it with my, with my wife. We watched one of the episodes... And it was a very complex, very complex plot, and it unfolded, and I was having to orient myself, not knowing who everybody was, but this complex fl- plot unfolded itself, and then it resolved in a certain way. Oh, that made sense. Then my son-in-law and daughter a week later said, we want to watch that. So I watched it again with my wife. So I've seen one episode two times, <laughs> and I watched that episode, and I knew what was coming. I knew where it was ending. And so I said, oh, that's why it started that way. Oh, that's why he did that. Oh, 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 all these aha moments. That's why. And what Paul is saying is, in God's wisdom, he's shown you where history is going. He's revealed it to you. He's made known the mystery of his will. He said, at the end of history, heaven and earth are going to be united. And now that makes sense of all of history before that. And it's also to be the story that makes sense of your life. You are to be aiming your life for that end of history and that moment when Christ unites all things. Now, what does it mean to unite heaven and earth? I think this is a very difficult concept for Western people. Heaven and earth doesn't make a lot of sense for us and uniting heaven and earth, it's hard to get hold of what he's saying because this is imagery and language that came from the ancient Near East. You see, they saw the gods in the Roman Empire as being in the heavenly places, in the heavens. And those gods controlled what was taking place on earth. And he's going to speak against those gods and those powers, and especially in Colossians, but also Ephesians. But what he says is, in the true story, the heavens are not a place for the gods. Heaven is the place where God dwells, where His reality of, he- of, of all people doing His will. That's why you could pray uh, that the angels and the saints doing His will. You see, that's why you could pray uh, in, in the Lord's prayer that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so when heaven is united with earth. It means I think three things. It means number 1 that God has come back to dwell in his creation. Heaven has come down united with earth and now the dwelling of God is with humanity. The second thing it must it means is that God is going to cleanse the world of all the evil and the sin that doesn't allow him as a holy God to dwell there in his triune fullness. But thirdly, not only does he dwell there and clean up the mess, he sets all things right. He restores the world to what it was meant to be. That is, relationship between humanity and God, in various human relationships, and God with the non-human creation. He says that's what it was meant to be in the beginning, and that's where history is going. And so, heaven and earth, this is what we see exactly in Revelation 21, these three things. It says, I heard a loud voice. See, what has happened is heaven as a city has come down to earth. It's no longer a garden the way it was in Genesis 1, it's now a city. And that heaven comes down to earth. And the loud voice shouts in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be their God. And that means he's going to clean up the mess. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Neither will be their mourning or crying or pain. For the former things have passed away. But all things are going to be made right. And he who is seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, the uniting of heaven and earth that will take place at the end of history is God coming to dwell, cleaning up the mess that sin has created and setting all things right. But the interesting thing is, he says in these verses that he has made known that purpose. And what he's going to reveal in the next, verses, I wish I could keep preaching here, in verses 10 and 11 on, is not only has he made it known, but by the Spirit, he has made it present here and now. There's this breaking into the middle of history of the uniting of heaven and earth, And he says, if you have received the Spirit as God's people, that Spirit has brought the end into the middle. He says it's like a deposit. A deposit is a down payment on what is coming. You get some now, and the rest comes later at the purchase of the house. And he says, you've got a deposit. You have an actual presence of this uniting of heaven and earth that you experience now through the Spirit. Now, he uses the language of deposit, other places, you got the first fruits of the harvest that's coming. My favorite image from the Bible comes from the book of Hebrews, not Paul at all. And that is a foretaste. He says, At the end, you're going to taste the fullness of the uniting of heaven and earth together. He says, But now you've got a foretaste. Now think about that. A foretaste is not just a sniff. In a sense, that's what the Old Testament people had, a sniff of what was coming. But with the coming of the Spirit, he says, you're not just sniffing the supper and starving, waiting for it. You're actually getting a taste of it. And he says, therefore, and my second favorite uh, word along, that goes along with that for me is preview. That is, you are like a movie preview. Those obnoxious things that take so long at the beginning of every movie, and they always show the good parts the only good parts in the whole movie. And what that is, is actual footage in the movie that says, don't you want to see the coming attraction when that whole thing comes out? And being a preview, what Paul is, when he talks about us having a deposit, he's saying, your actual footage of heaven and earth uniting together. And you are now to demonstrate that and as actual footage get people to look and say, hmm, that's where history is going. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that future attraction. And so God's people today are to be heaven-touching earth people. Heaven-touching earth people. Where heaven has actually begun to touch earth in the work of Christ and by the Spirit. And the people of God have begun to get a taste of that and it will be a preview of that coming time when heaven will fill earth and unite all things. What does this look like for the 21st century? Paul is going to tell the Ephesians in the coming time what it looks like, and he's even going to say to them, remember that when you get here at the end of chapter 2, you're a temple. You see, in the Old Testament, and in all the ancient people, the temple was the place where heaven touched earth. That was the place where the gods dwelt and heaven touched earth. And in the Old Testament, that's where God dwelt, where heaven touched earth. And now Paul says, you're going to be a temple where heaven touches earth, living in the midst of the people, and then he's going to go on and say, this is what it looks like. Now, what would Paul say to us? Well, this is where we could get going for a while. Let me just mention a few things. Paul would say, maybe to us, he says, your cultural story is telling you that maybe God exists. And if He does, He's off there in heaven somewhere. You can meet Him in your private devotions early in the morning and maybe at night. Meet Him on Sunday for an hour and a half. But basically, He doesn't have much to do with anything else going on in the world. Really, it's the multinational corporations and big governments that run this world. He's not that present. And the reality is we all know different. But the way we live often is by, by not walking in Christ. That is, as Paul puts it, that in Him we live and move and have our being. That living in the presence of God, the presence of Christ in His Spirit all the time, walking in relationship in the same way that I live in my home. And even when I'm not talking to my wife, I know she's there. And I spend probably a month or two months of the year without my wife, and I know she's not there. And it affects my life deeply, because I need her there. And do we have that sense that God is always present? We're walking. Coram Deo is the way they used to put it in in Latin. That is always in the presence of God. That's what the story of a heaven and earth people tells us to be. But our cultural story also tells us that you live for yourself. The whole thing you're to live for is to look out for number one. And that's you. Looking out for number one. You know, I'm not that far from retirement age. Well into my 60s, i oh, not that far from retirement age. And I think that a lot of people my age must watch football. Because that's where the ads for retirement are always coming. <laughs> and they're bombarding people like me and telling us, Look out for yourself. Look out for yourself. Look out for yourself. Don't worry about him. Look out for yourself. Now, I'm not saying retirement planning is a bad thing. It's a good thing. But what I'm saying is I'm constantly being told that you deserve this, you deserve this, you deserve this. And after a while, I start believing and say, I deserve this. And I start becoming very egocentric and selfish. But with the biblical story, that, that's the constant propaganda of our culture But the biblical story says that doesn't make you happy. That doesn't fulfill you. That's not what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to pour out your life in selfless, self-giving generosity. Not worrying first about yourself, but worrying about everyone else. Honoring others above yourself, as Paul says. Constantly looking out for the needs of others and being willing to sacrificially serve the other that's what a heaven and earth people look like. And if we just live that way in our egocentric, narcissistic, self-centered world, we would be very different as a heaven and earth people. We are living in a story that is breeding such ecological and economic injustice. And Paul would say to us, the story of the Bible teaches you to seek, the ju- seek justice, to honor the poor, to be concerned for the marginalized and the needy. And if you are a heaven and earth people, you'll do like the law did, uh, the law did in the Old Testament that made the poor the concern, primary concern of, for God's people. And also, I think Paul would say to us, he'd say, you live in a story that is very wasteful. You're living in a story that is coming in and trashing God's creation He's invited you into his home and said, take good care of it. And you're coming in and you see the non-human creation is for your own good and you're trashing it. And what he would say to a wasteful people like us is, be a people of stewardship. This is, we sang the beautiful song, this is my father's world. This is my father's world. How about this is my father's home? Because after all, that's what the Garden of Eden was meant to, was meant to picture and what if I invited you to my home and you just started using everything and trashing it? I wouldn't be very respectful. And so God would say, I think Paul would say to us, be a people of stewardship that cares for the creation. And I think he would go on and all kinds of other things to say to us, you know, when heaven touches earth, things are restored. When heaven touches earth, people are restored to God, people are restored to each other, and people are restored to their calling in the non human creation. Let me finish with a story that uh, may help. A number of years ago, I think it had about 15 years ago now, if I recall right, right, rightly, or 12 years ago, I got a call on the phone, and the call was from a fairly well known scholar that had written about 10 books or so, and I knew his books. And he said, Hello, you Mike Goheen? I said, Yes. He said, I am so-and-so. I never talked to him. I didn't know what he was calling about. But he said, I just wanted to call you to thank you for your book, Drama of Scripture. You're welcome. And I wasn't sure what he was calling about. And then he went on to talk about it for a little while. And I said, you're welcome. We had a nice conversation. Then I hung up the phone. And I went into my wife. I said, strangest thing just happened. This guy calls me to thank you for the book, and he knows more about it than I do. What is going on? I don't know what's going on. (laughs) I didn't know until years later. Now I know somewhat of what was going on. He was dying of cancer. He died a very short time after he called. And basically what he writes in the introduction to the book that came out after he died was, I've written these books, but the most urgent thing facing the evangelical church today in the United States, he writes is who, and this is the title of the book, who gets to narrate the world? Who gets to narrate the world? He says global capitalism is one story that's the most powerful story in the the world. He says the second most powerful story is Islam. And he said the third story, and I think he's totally wrong, is Marxism. I think Marxism is dead. But then he said there's one more, and that's the biblical story that tells a different story than those others. And his concern and why he thought it was so urgent was that he believed the American church, and I'll include the Canadian church, the European church, was living more out of the first story than out of the last one. That that story was shaping their life more than the Bible. And I wonder if Paul might say to us, one of the things you have to face is you put religion over here in the private realm. But religion is not a private thing. Religion is who's made this world and that all of life is all for Jesus. And he said, writes in the very beginning of the book, the most urgent issue facing the evangelical church today is who gets to narrate the world. And what Paul wants to do in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 for you today is narrate the world for you and say, this is the true story, come live with both feet in it. And what Paul wants to do is subvert for you the story of idolatry that is shaping our world here in North America. And may God grant that by His Spirit, we would be a heaven and earth people, making the end known in the middle, so people want to go there. Let's, be, let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see this good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that in his life, his death, and his resurrection, the uniting of all things in heaven and earth under Christ has come, it has been accomplished, that it has been made present, and we pray, O God, that we, as that people who have received the Spirit, where heaven has touched earth, would be a heaven-touching earth people in our work, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our leisure, in our use of technology, and in every other part of our lives. Lord, may we be a preview of that time when heaven and earth will be fully united. And we look to that day with hope. And thank you in Jesus' name.